The content presented in this podcast is solely for educational purposes and should not be used as medical advice to diagnose, manage, or treat any health conditions. If you or someone you know has a condition or disease discussed in this podcast, we would encourage you to create and implement a care plan specific to your needs under the supervision of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of experts in the field of fetal medicine and should not be interpreted as the standard of care. Trigger warning, this episode discusses stillbirth, infant loss, and fetal loss, and may be distressing or triggering for some of our listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, womb mates. Welcome back to the News Womb. My name is Erin Moise. And I am Ken Moise. And we have a debunking dramatizations for you tonight. We haven't done one in a while. We haven't. And you did the research for this one like three months ago. Right. Yeah. Well, it's been that long since I think the House of the Dragon is over. Yes. Corrections from our previous. So this episode, we have to, I guess, let's clarify. This episode may be a tupata. Tupata. Maybe. But it's talking about season one, episode 10. The last, the last in the series. The season finale. Well, the, it was season finale. Yeah, it They'll was. They'll probably renew for another season. They make too much money off of this. The Black Queen, it's called. The episode's called The Black Queen, and it's House of the Dragon. The Dragon. Just one. Only, nope. one, only one. Only one dragon. But there's lots of dragons in this, so. Only one in the title. I know. It's, it's a drag. It should be the House of the Dragon's. But since since this episode, since and since your research, we've learned that this is based off of a book called right. Fire and Blood. This whole season is based off of Fire and Blood. Right. That will come into play later. So are you going to set the scene? Am I setting the scene? I'll, I'll set the scene. So this is the last season one, episode 10. Renera, who's the queen now. She was the daughter of the king, but now she's the queen. And her throne is being contested. But in the meantime of her throne being contested... She's pregnant with her fourth child. My my brief online research I just did to find the prosthetic from this episode said so this was her sixth child. Sixth. I, I lost out on two here then because okay. I only counted three living children. Three living children, but is it her sixth pregnancy? What are her G's and P's? <laughs> I, yeah, I lost her G's, P's, and everything else here. Okay. So I counted as a fourth one. She had three boys, and they were all alive by different people. And so, yeah. Okay. But anyway, so she's pregnant with her fourth child, and in the scene, she goes into labor. And, and I'm sorry, which which delivery number is this on four. this? No, four. no, no, no. You yeah. said there's been X number of deliveries on this, ep- on this, this show. This is the fourth delivery. Yeah, this is the fourth been... delivery <clears throat> depiction. <clears throat> yeah, the first one was we talked about was that C-section done with no anesthesia. That was the other queen, the first queen, right? That was her mother that had the section with no anesthesia. That was the very first episode. There were a couple in between with some breaches and some dragons burning people up. And it was just, yeah, babies everywhere. This is it. This is the last baby born. And uh, 
She's in labor in his bloody shirts and a couple of midwives hanging around doing nothing but staring. Yes, this. And uh, none of those, what do we call those guys, the maestras or whatever, the guys yeah, that did the, the C-section? they're doctors. Yeah, they're not there, just the midwives. No one's, yeah, just yeah. midwives. And they're like, can we help you? And she doesn't say anything. She doesn't say anything. She just grunts. Yes. And she's in a long white gown and his blood, a little bit of blood. And then all of a sudden she kind of bears down, kind of standing up, and a whole bunch of blood comes out. And then this... But it's not like Frank Red Blood. It's kind of like a gelatinous mixture. It's like a clot, like a clot. It, yeah, yeah. But it's it doesn't. It's not like a gush of just straight blood. Right. It's like a clot. Yeah. And and then the baby pops out. Right. It plops out, and it looks weird. Right. Now tell us about the prop because you did some homework I, on the prop. I did a little bit of homework. So I did some homework after. A maternal fetal medicine doctor at IFMSS informed us. Shout out, Jesse. <laughs> hey, Jesse. Informed us that this was a very specific prop that was created for this particular birth because it's supposed to be part dragon. Right. And in the books, it's depicted that she's basically given birth to this dragon. And it is a stillborn in the books as well, but they talk about these dragon features. So there's actually, which I'll probably link to on our Instagram, the prop master who created this prop posted it on the Instagram because it's covered in blood and kind of mucusy in the show. So it's kind of hard to see, but it has scales. There's essentially no nose. And it's supposed to have like a little stump for a tail, and it has a very strangely shaped head. Right. Well, you can see the head, but I didn't see the scales. I just saw blood on this gelatinous still. Yeah, the scales are kind of hard to see. But if you see the prop separately, I'll try Makes and sense. repost these pictures. They look, you can see them on the prop, just not with all the blood. So anyway, this thing <clears throat> pops out. It's it's a stillbirth. It's, it's dead. There's a lot of blood everywhere. She picks it up and holds it and eventually wraps it. In a, in a barrel cloth to to be buried at some point. Uh, oh, by the way, you can see that the cord is around the neck at least once. It's kind of hard. Yeah, to tell. we were. It's for sure. There's at least what we call a nuchal cord, or whenever the umbilical cord is wrapped around the neck, at least one. They'll call it. Do you call it a double or a triple, depending on how many? How many loops? Yeah. Yeah, depending on how many loops are around. So, so that's why we thought we would take this on because there's really nothing medically wrong with this scene, other than prop which is weird right but scientifically we don't want people to think that impossible. this that this nuchal cord we'll talk about this in a minute causes stillbirth it probably probably have to guess looking at the scene was an abruption what's an abruption, an abruption of what right so an abruption is when the placenta separates early and there's a lot of bleeding using maternal blood but it's cut off the oxygen to the baby so the baby can be stillborn from uh, not enough oxygen because it's and, lost its heart-lung machine. Right. Okay. And it's associated with a lot of bleeding and extra contractions. And that would be my guess as to the reason for this stillbirth. So it's really, we're not going to debunk anything. We're just going to say there was a stillbirth. Hypothesize. We're going to hypothesize. And we're going to hypothesize it was an abruption and not the nuchal cord. And tonight we're going to talk about stillbirth in general, based on this show, kind of getting things kick-started. Yes, and um, with that being said, our lovely social worker, Delaney Herman, will also be doing her own segment on this topic because it can be a little bit triggering. And so her background, being in social work and being licensed in counseling, she's going to give some input on that in a later episode. So stay tuned there. And I think we're going to even talk to a pathologist about the role of pathology and autopsy and placental examination in stillbirth also, which I think will be very cool to follow up with that too. 
Okay, so let's start with how you how would you define a stillbirth? Yeah, so there's a classic definition. It's a loss of a baby after 20 weeks gestation. So before 20 weeks, we call it a miscarriage or abortion. We don't like the word abortion. We say a miscarriage. Uh, some people call it a spontaneous abortion. But after 20 weeks, it's called a stillbirth. Or if you don't know the gestational age, it's uh, a fetus that weighs 350 grams or more. Okay, and how often do stillbirths occur in pregnancy? Yeah, it, they're actually pretty common. There are probably over 21,000 stillbirths in the U.S. each year. That comes out to about one in every 175 births. That it's, so it's not uncommon to have a stillbirth. And what would you say are some of the risk factors that are associated with having a stillbirth? So there's some demographic factors like race. So we know the the black race has twice the risk of other races. We don't know why. We know that both maternal and fetal mortality is higher in the black race, and there are lots of people struggling with why that is. Uh, is it related to prenatal care? Is it related to a higher chance for hypertension? We're not sure. Uh, next would be American Indian, then Hispanic, and Caucasians have the lowest rate of stillbirth based on race. So there's some other factors. Uh, twins have about a two and a half times increased rate of stillbirth, particularly monochorionic twins. That's going to be a whole separate segment, set of chapters on our podcast later. But so monochorionic, identical twins have a very high instance of stillbirth. Males, more than female fetuses. Hmm. Um, the The extremes of maternal age, so less than 15 years of age or over 35. Obesity, and they, at least in the ACOG bulletin, define obesity as a BMI of more than 30. That's a lot of people with a BMI of more mm-hmm. than 30. Smoking, really bad. Uh, smoking associated with abruption and associated with stillbirth. Uh, but quitting before pregnancy, interestingly enough, is protective. So if you mm-hmm. stop smoking before you get pregnant, so it may be something related to while you're smoking and you get the placental implantation, that's what causes things to go awry. Mm-hmm. IVF has a little bit higher rate of stillbirth. We're not sure why. Going overdue by 41 weeks has a 2.9-fold in, uh, increase. And if you go to 42 weeks, which nobody should do anymore, <laughs> a five-fold rate of stillbirth. Wow. So you shouldn't go overdue. If you've had a previous stillbirth, we know that you have almost five times the risk of another stillbirth. Uh, and then, of course, there are a lot of maternal diseases like insulin-dependent diabetes, hypertension, connective tissue diseases. Those are all other causes of stillbirth, many of which we don't totally understand why they cause stillbirth. The next question says, what are the causes of stillbirth? Well, the first were risk factors, and then you have the actual... Yeah, but you what's just kept r- saying, what are the causes? Well, this is like, what's wrong with the baby, right? Okay. Is there something... Okay, what are the fetal causes That's of stillbirth? That's it, I like that. Okay, so let's talk about the fetal causes of stillbirth. So growth restriction, and we'll define that as some people say less than the third percentile fetal weight... That's a really small baby. That's associated with stillbirth, a baby that's just stopped growing. Abruption we just mentioned, uh, based on our episode with the Black Queen, uh, is a, f- a 5 to 10% of stillbirths are related to abruption. Chromosomal problems, so a baby has some kind of uh, chromosomal problem, that's a 6 to 13%. And then there are a variety of infections that can cause stillbirth, uh, a whole bunch of different types of infection, 10 to 20% of stillbirths. And when you say that these percentages are maybe some of them are probably ranges, but how accurate would you predict these percentages to be given that we don't get autopsies on every stillbirth? So we may not always know the cause. Yeah, exactly. This data comes from, uh, there was a stillbirth network set up by the NIH where they had a fairly rigorous 
we'll talk about some of the tests they did, but a fairly rigorous protocol for looking for every kind of thing for stillbirth. And those numbers come from that stillbirth network with, I forget how many babies were in 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 the series, but it was quite a few nationally. And they came up with some pretty good numbers that I just quoted uh, for known causes of stillbirth. There's still, if you look at those numbers, you know, 30, 40% of the time, we still don't know what's wrong that caused a stillbirth, despite all the tests we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. Well, how would you prevent a stillbirth in general? Well, that's, you know, most stillbirths occur in pregnancies with no risk factors. And that's, that's the perplexing thing. How do we predict it? And obviously we treat maternal conditions like insulin dependent diabetes. We put it in good control. Smoking, we tell people to stop. Hypertension, we get that in good control with medications and monitor the patient's blood pressure. We also, and we'll talk a little bit about this, is we do testing, uh, particularly in someone who's had a stillbirth. Uh, we do testing twice a week, once or twice a week, to see if the baby's showing any signs of distress. And we look for ultrasounds to make sure that babies are growing okay. Yeah, I was going to say, because that intrauterine growth restriction, that that I've seen you make calls of delivering patients sooner to decrease their risk of a stillbirth or losing their baby. Yeah, and I think it's, again, like so many other tests in pregnancy, it's not one number, it's watching over time. And if you watch a growth curve on a baby, even if it's small, if it's growing on its own curve, you you can sit tight. But when you see that growth curve plateau, particularly the abdominal circumference plateau, then that baby's running out of gas and probably better to get out if you can, if there's a reasonable gestational age, than leave that baby in utero and take the chance of losing that baby. And then you just talked about some antenatal testing. So aside from the growth scan ultrasound, what um, antenatal testing would you recommend? So the, the classic test today uh, are the biophysical profile. Um, that's usually done with a total score of eight. A best score is eight. It's like a, a in utero APGAR score. We look at fluid, movement, breathing, and tone, and each of those parameters gets a score uh, in, in its best scenario of a two. So eight of eight is the best and go home, see in a week. A six of eight is kind of, uh, we're not so sure. Might want to do another test, uh, like to get a, a fetal heart rate tracing. And a four of eight is bad. That means this baby's probably in trouble unless it's asleep or there's some other reason for it. But you've got to at least repeat it and figure out why this baby's not breathing or moving. It's interesting, in the biophysical profile, the things you mature to last disappear first, if that makes sense. So if you watch babies um, throughout pregnancy as they mature, the last thing they get is breathing. And so not seeing breathing is the first thing to go when a baby's in trouble. And then you get movement and then you get tone, loss of tone. So, you know, these babies are just kind of laying dead in the water like dead man's floating when they're not feeling good. So biophysical is probably one of the most commonly used tests with ultrasound to uh, determine if a baby's okay. The non-stress test is is widely used also, and some people put it together with the biophysical for a best score of 10. So you get two for a good uh, NST. And the NST, a non-stress test, involves putting you on the monitor and leaving you there for at least 20 minutes and watching the baby move or listen for it to move. And when it moves, the heart rate should go up by about 15 beats for 15 seconds. And that's a reactive non-stress test. Then there's the modified biophysical profile, which I never quite understood why they call it that, which is a non-stress test and then an ultrasound to peep at the fluid and make sure your fluid's okay. Because fluid, the amount of amniotic fluid is a marker for has a chronic stress for the baby. When babies are chronically stressed, they quit peeing, and so the fluid 
from around the baby decreases and you get worried about the baby. Uh, we say that if the say AFI is less than five or that's the amniotic fluid index or the maximum vertical pocket is less than two, that's not a normal amount of fluid and that means the baby is stressed. So those are the tests we use today, biophysical, non-stress tests, and modified biophysical. Okay, those are antenatal testing that you have to do in an office, but what about something that a patient can do at home, like kick counts? What about doing those daily? Yeah, so it makes sense that you would um, be able to educate the mother on kick counts. And unfortunately, there's some big studies, uh, one reported in 2018, uh, in a bunch of midwife patients where they would, um, this is done in Ireland, UK and Ireland, and you know, half the patients did kick counts every day and half didn't. And what they found was despite training people on kick counts and all and having protocols and everything, there was no change in stillbirth rate despite the moms supposedly being tuned into their baby's movement. And the induction rate and C-section rate went up. So a lot more interventions with no bang for your buck. In other words, no decrease in stillbirth with maternal education on how to assess fetal movement. So we always tell our patients, if you don't feel fetal movement, come in. I, I think that's hard for patients to interpret that. I like to use a count to 10 method as an Israeli technique where you pick a time every night and you keep a little diary and you start, write the time down you start. And after you get 10 kicks, you write the time down you finish. And after you establish a pattern if on any one night it takes three times longer than usual to reach 10, that's a problem. You need to come in and get checked out. Or if you progressively take longer and longer to get to 10 and you reach that threshold three times more than usual, that's a baby slowing down. Babies slow down and hibernate when they don't feel good. And you should come in and get checked out on labor and delivery. So that's kind of how I tell my patients how to do kick counts. But there's not a lot of good data on kick counts in any kind of really evidence-based fashion to say it decreases the rate of stillbirth, even in high-risk pregnancies. There just isn't a lot of good data. So most of us use these antenatal tests that we talked about once or even twice a week in some cases uh, to decide if a baby uh, should be delivered or is in trouble. Okay, so say a patient unfortunately doesn't make it to the hospital in time. She does experience an intrauterine fetal demise or what we call an IUFD and she loses her baby, how do you go about delivering a stillbirth? Well, I think you would try at all costs to try to get a vaginal birth, right? I mean, it's it doesn't make sense to do an operative delivery and put the mother at some surgical risk, even not for this pregnancy, but also for future pregnancies, by just doing, you really wouldn't even call it a C-section, you'd call it a hysterotomy. Uh, C-sections for a live baby. And that's, you know, it's the same as a C-section, but it has its risk. Most people would induce these pregnancies, and depending on how far along you are would depend on what medications you use. The uterus early in pregnancy is not very responsive to oxytocin. There are not a lot of receptors on the uterine muscles, so you have to use prostaglandins. And so you can use uh, uh, 400 micrograms of what's called mesoprostol. That's a PGE-1 prostaglandin, uh, and it can put in the vagina. It's a pill uh, every six hours, and, and that works you know, even if you have a uterine scar, so even if you had a previous C-section, there's studies to show that's safe to do that. It'll take, you know, 24 hours to get the patient induced, but they'll deliver vaginally. Uh, a caveat here is these contractions, if you look at them on the monitor, are not the rhythmic contractions you see with Pitocin or oxytocin. They hurt. They're long, two, three-minute contractions. And so I'd always get an epidural in my patient who has to be induced like this. 
just to make it as comfortable as possible. But you can use misoprostol. Later on, as the uterus gets bigger, you don't want to push the uterus too hard. You'd probably use a little bit lower dose, like 200 milligrams, sorry, 200 micrograms of misoprostol every six hours. And after about seven months, you can use just use oxytocin. Uh, you can ripen the cervix with a Foley bulb if need be. And then once the cervix is dilated a bit, you can start oxytocin. So a variety of techniques to stimulate the uterus to deliver. But again, I would highly encourage the mothers, even with a previous C-section, to try to attempt a vaginal delivery uh, to prevent, um, you know, the morbidity of, of a surgical procedure. And how about antenatal testing in the next pregnancy after a mother has experienced a stillbirth? So this is always difficult for the patient because she's had the psychological trauma of losing a baby. And as you approach that gestational age, she's going to really push her obstetrician to go ahead and get that baby delivered so it doesn't happen again. The general recommendation is to start testing at around eight months to 32 weeks or at least one or two weeks before the loss, the time of the previous loss. So let's say you had a loss at 28 weeks, you'd probably start testing around 26 weeks. Most of our antenatal testing is done around 32 weeks or eight months in general. And then what about delivery in the next pregnancy after you've had a stillbirth? Yeah, so we always push for 39 weeks, right? I mean, that's like the best time to deliver. Uh, You don't like to let your patient go much past 39 or 40 weeks. We already talked about a higher rate of stillbirth at 41 and 42 weeks. In today's obstetrical practice, you really shouldn't be delivering patients that late. ACOG will say it may warrant, with a history of previous stillbirth, it may warrant an earlier delivery. Again, more for psychological reasons. There's really no good study to say that delivering them earlier is going to make for a better outcome in the next pregnancy. We did say they have a much higher rate of recurrent stillbirth. But I think you want to at least try to achieve a 37-week gestation because that's when the lungs are more likely to be mature. So I'd push for 37 weeks at least in the next pregnancy. Well, mates, that wraps up part one of two, I guess of three technically, but two of our part. And then Delaney will be our third part. And placenta will be the fourth part. Placenta. Placenta and autopsy. Oh, Pathology. Pathology. So apparently this is all it's a full potter. Because <laughs> I think we'll talk a little bit about that in the second part here. Part two. Part two. We'll be about more about placenta, but that's going to come out next week. So this is wrapping up part one. Okay. So stay tuned for part two coming in next week. But for now, this is Aaron Moise signing and is, off. And this is Ken Moise. Jump more to in follow. The gun.